Well, some of you heard over the weekend that uh, in Hawaii, residents there woke up to a rather uh, shocking situation when they received a text message on all the cell phones in Hawaii that a uh, nuclear ballistic missile attack was imminent. And some of you saw the pictures perhaps on the news or on, on the internet of people taking their children and putting them in storm drains in Honolulu, trying to protect them from an attack that they expected from North Korea. And it, it was a, a true reminder of the tenuousness of our existence here on earth, that with, uh, with, with a few presses of a button, we can either terrify one another or destroy one another. And it is a reflection, isn't it, that the human experience, life here on earth, is one where we see a lot of anxiety. We see a lot of anxiousness in the world. As one author has put it, he said, to be human is to be afraid. We're small, and the world is big. And though we make plans, we can't just seem to control even the most trivial of circumstances. And if you listen to the news, it just gets worse. The declining economy, the corrupt politicians, and the lack of real relationships in the home. And then you get down to your personal life at work and with your family. And we've all heard the expression, how do you sleep at night? Usually this is said to somebody who is going through some sort of crisis in their lives. And there's just a general recognition that sleep is difficult when our hearts are troubled. When things are just not right in our world. Our minds refuse to go to sleep when we just turn things over and over in our minds. Some of you might even be experiencing this tonight. Some of you may be dreading going to bed. You have these things that are on your heart. So this is a very practical question for us this evening. How do you sleep at night? Well, this psalm is a path, quite literally, to sleep tonight in peace. It's an evening prayer offered by the psalmist, by David. Now, some scholars have tried to pair this psalm with the previous one, Psalm 3. And Psalm 3, you'll see the superscription, which are not inspired, but the superscription gives us some of the, uh, the historical context there about when David wrote that psalm, when he was fleeing from his son Absalom, who had betrayed him. But it's not really necessary. They, they, they say that Psalm 4 is sort of a continuation, but it's not really necessary to put these two psalms together. Although we know for sure is that Psalm 3 is likely a morning prayer, and that Psalm 4... Because of verse 8, the way it ends is likely an evening prayer. An evening prayer in a day of trouble. And we're not told even what trouble it is. Just that it's trouble. But whatever that trouble is that lies behind the composition of this heartfelt cry to God, behind the composition of Psalm 4, this psalm overall shows us that it is a valuable trouble. A valuable trouble. 
Now you might say to yourself, how can you say that trouble is valuable? I mean, don't I want to avoid trouble? Seriously. Why is Pastor Chris saying that trouble is valuable? Well, I actually do think that the superscription in this, in this passage is actually helpful. If you look at the heading of the psalm, it says something very simple. To the choir master with stringed instruments. This prayer was recorded and sung and resung by the body, by the church. And this meant that this prayer had a purpose. As we unpack it this evening, I think you'll see that it provides us instruction. As you read the psalm, it appears to be intent on correcting our thinking and on providing discipleship in the faith. As we've said before, the, the Psalms are the prayer book of the Christian life. They provide direct insight into the struggles of believers that are wiser. God chose to inspire these Psalms to help us. And, and these are recorded and we're called to sing them because they are a model of how believers in the past engage with God and they're a model of how we ought to engage with God ourselves. Now, the Psalms come in various different genres, various different approaches. This is a Psalm of lament, but it is also a Psalm of confidence. It fits both categories as it begins to lament and it progresses to confidence. And we see that consistently through the book of Psalms. Pastor John and I were talking tonight about another psalm that is also a lament, but it is one of the only ones in the Psalter that does not end in confidence. Psalm 88. Perhaps another time I will preach to you that psalm, because that psalm also is a very interesting psalm. The psalms speak to our very situation. It even speaks to us in our despair. But the overarching message is that even... In, even in the Christian life, we can begin in lament and end in confidence. We can move from distress to peace, from anxiety to sleep. And my hope as we open up this scripture this, this evening is that that will be helpful for you tonight. That this will provide for you something to hang your hat on in the storm of life's challenges. This evening we're going to examine this psalm under three headings. The psalm is firstly an urgent and confident prayer to God. We see that in verse 1. Secondly, it is a prayer that instructs. We see that in verses 2 to 6. And finally, it is a prayer that inspires joy and peace in verses 7 and 8. Well, let's look first of all then at verse 1. An urgent and confident prayer. David, as he approaches God in this section, knows God's character. How does he address him? He says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. In other words, he knows that God is the God who will show me to be in the right, even if I am misjudged or persecuted. One of the reasons why we can call out to God and why we cry out to God is because He is a just God. He addresses sin. He holds the world accountable. 
And so we could hold ourselves up and we could cry out to God on the basis of his justice. Even when others are completely misconstruing us, even when we are being slandered, as David was in the day of his son, Absalom. Now, it's interesting how David begins this prayer. How do you begin your prayers to God when you're hurting? When you're, when you're experiencing just pain and suffering? Don't we often begin, usually, we cry out of the pain and of our experience first. And in one sense, that's not wrong. But I think it's instructive that that's not how David begins here. The psalmist here puts God's character in the first line of this prayer. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. When we go through difficulty, we just often cry out of the circumstances. Sometimes we feel like just saying, my life sucks, Lord, help me. Right? That is how we feel. And while that may be a true and indeed a legitimate thing to cry out to God, prayer is not just intended to be an emotive outburst. No question that we cry emotionally to our God. But prayer is part of worship. And what that means is that it's part of meditation and communication. And when we come to God in prayer, it ought to be a dialogical aspect. Now you've heard this word dialogue. What that means is that it's, it's a conversation. See, our God is a personal God. He's not some impersonal Allah who calls us to submit to Him, who we cannot speak to, we cannot cry out to. That's not what we see in the Scriptures. No, He is a personal God. An effective prayer is a prayer in response to God's word. When we're in distress, we ought to pray out of what we know about our God. We need to pray out of who God is and what he is in his promises. And prayer, in some sense, it's like praying down the character of God. It's praying his promises back to him and appealing to him to act according to them. And this is exactly what the psalmist is doing here. And that's what gives him the confidence to come into his presence. God is a God of his righteousness. God will provide vindication. So he cries out to him in this way. Now again, let's reflect. Is this how you respond when you're in trouble? Verse 2 indicates to us something here. He says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? The problem that David is having here, ultimately, is that his reputation is under attack. Perhaps it's Absalom bending the ears of his advisors and his people against him. We don't know exactly what it is. But how do you respond when you face a similar situation? When you have a reputation attack? Maybe you're at work 
and somebody attacks your reputation. How do you respond to that? Do you immediately go over to your group of friends and complain and look for sympathy? Can you believe what he did? Right? That's not what David does. David here turns to God and takes refuge in his character. In God's character. Not David's character. He's certainly holding that up, but he, he, he takes refuge in that God will vindicate him. That God will be his vindication. That's how he begins to deal with the problem in his life. He goes to God first. But the psalmist here in verse 1 also recalls that God has given him relief when I was in, my, when I was in distress. Now, Dale Roth Davis, who is one of my favorite commentators on the book of Psalms, has suggested another more literal rendering of the Hebrew in verse 1 is in tight places or tight spaces, you have made space for me. In tight spaces, you have made space for me. Again, a picture of God's providential and gracious care for us. We all know what it's like to be squeezed and under pressure. But the psalmist here is not just focused on his present trouble. He is recalling God's past faithfulness. And as a result, he has confidence. Right? What is the instruction that we have? If you hear about anxiety, there's one passage in Scripture that you see quoted all the time. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice the Lord always. And I'll say it again, rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He comes with thanksgiving because of what God has done in the prayer, in the past. And because of this, this past faithfulness of God, again, praying the character of God, it gives him confidence and urgency to press his case. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. In other words, the psalmist here is expressing a need. He is getting to the urgency of his condition. But he is not in despair because he has confidence that God will hear him because he is reminded and meditated on God's faithfulness to him in the past. And the, con- and the confidence that that generates is that God will respond positively to his prayer because he knows that that is the character of his God. And he knows this because God has shown he has a good track record, a perfect track record. And so the psalmist is so confident of God's positive response to his prayer, he can describe God's deliverance as if it has already happened. In the first lines of his prayer here, David declares God's character. He remembers God's mercies and he presents his concerns. Is this how you do it? Is this how you pray? Right? The Psalms can be helpful to us in addressing these things. The, psalm, the prayer can actually be a means of grace. And part of the means of grace is reflecting and meditating on who you're praying to. That gives you confidence and urgency that your, your words don't just 
aren't just said and then just disappear into the ether. But they are heard in the very throne room of God. And God listens and responds. I think it's helpful for us to see this. And I'm pointing this out because I think there's often a gap between biblical prayer and our prayer. Biblical prayer appears to ponder, to meditate on God a good deal more than you or I do. We go right oftentimes to petitions. It's almost like we go, ouch, it hurts, right? And then we go right to that. And maybe sometimes we need to. I'm not trying to, 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 to beat you down if you've cried out to God. No, that's what we're supposed to do. But the Psalms are written for our instruction. The Word of God is written for our instruction. That is the, the, the reflection of the New Testament on the Old Testament. It was written for our instruction. And it's important for us to, to think about, to be thoughtful about our prayer. We're not rattling off prayer as some ritual where we string together a bunch of cliches in, in an attempt to find some sort of magical formula that will wake up our God. That's no, a pagan prayer. And sometimes, it, frankly, brothers and sisters, we can, we can be thoughtless in our prayers. And we wonder why we do it. And we wonder what, what, what effect. Now, God is gracious. Even in our weakness, he helps us. But we want to disciple. We want to, we want to grow in our devotion to God. We want to grow in our joy and in our confidence when we're facing difficulty. So the scriptures are written for our instruction to help us in this way. And some of you have received teaching before about prayer. Some of you have, have, have any of you heard of the ACTS approach to prayer? ACTS? Okay, a few of you. Right, the A stands for adoration, right? The C stands for confession. The T stands for thanksgiving. Often the one we often forget, right? And the S stands for supplications, petitions, right? Now, I know that when I was taught this as a child, right, I would look for the shortest way to get from A to S, right? So, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. All right, done the adoration thing. All right, help me here, right? And, and you know, you understand that. that. That's a child's response. That's how they understand prayer. But a mature believer recognizes the value of prayer that is unanswered. The mature believer recognizes that prayer is a reflection upon God. And we have to acknowledge that our God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And it may be his design not to answer the prayer that we are asking in the way that we want. And we need to be able to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, as Job did. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Understanding that he works all things to our good. So it's not just, prayer is not just a means of getting what we want. Oh, I want the BMW. I want the house. I want. No, that's not it. That's paganism. That's paganism. The Word of God calls us to, to dialogue with the living God, the creator God. And we cry out to him for our needs. Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, I will give it. And you think, well, that's wonderful. I, I, need, I need a bigger bank account. I need all of these other things. But that's not what Jesus says. According to my Father's will. Right? What is God's will? That's an important aspect. We'll talk about more of that. We'll talk more about that in, in, a, in a future 
uh, message. But this is the thing that's important. We, we can learn from David's example here. He combines thoughtfulness, God's character and help, and urgencies, God's grace for his needs. He engages with God. It's not thoughtlessness. The kind of the interesting thing that I find is that we are seeing now, even in secular circles, that we're being encouraged to pray. It's kind of a, a therapeutic thing. You know, if you go to a counselor, a grief counselor or something like that, they will actually recommend prayer. They see it as a release of tension. But David here provides a different perspective. He shows it's far more than just an emotional release. It is an act of worship that comes in confidence to a God who hears. But this is not just uh, a prayer of confidence. It's a prayer that instructs, secondly. And we see this in verses 2 to 6. It provides us warning and counsel. And this prayer seems to address various groups of people. It appears to be a corporate prayer. The first thing that it addresses are slanderers. Verses 2 and 3. Oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now again, as we said this morning, when you see L-O-R-D in capital, small capital letters there, it is invoking the covenant name of God, the I am that I am God that revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. So he is calling out to Yahweh God. But the group that he is addressing in his prayer seems to those who are slandering David and bringing these false charges against him. And of course, I'm sure this is not a surprise to any of us. It's not uncommon. You ever wondered why people attack one another? Well, it's often because of pride. And particularly as Christians living in this world, we are seeking to please not ourselves, but our God. And so our standard should be higher. Right? There's a reputation that precedes it. A, a, a biblical Christian should have a squeaky clean reputation. And you know what? That irks some people. They don't like the squeaky clean reputation. And there's just something, that just bothers me. I'm going to put him down, right? James Boyce, the famous Presbyterian minister, tells the story from ancient Greece of a very uh, famous interaction when an illiterate citizen approached a man of Athens to help him to cast a vote in election, in a senatorial election, by writing a name on a ballot. And the man of Athens asked the illiterate citizen why he wanted to vote for the condemnation of Aristides, the famous Greek statesman. And Aristides was known for his fairness. In fact, he had a title. He was known as Aristides the Just. Okay? He's a, he's a real senator. From, he lived from 530 to 468 B.C. And the man... Uh, who, who was helping this, this illiterate man to fill out the ba- ballot, asked him 
why he was condemning Aristides. He asked him if, if Aristides had wronged him in some way. No, was the reply. And I don't even know him. But it irritates me to hear him everywhere called Aristides the just. Now, according to legend, the person that this person had a dialogue with was Aristides himself. And according to the legend, after hearing his rationale, Aristides still helped the citizen to vote against him. Truly, if that's true, he is a just man. Perhaps you have experienced something like this. The very people that you are closest to, the people you have served and trusted, you have turned on you for no good reason. In fact, quite honestly, I would be surprised if in this sinful world you have not experienced this on some level. All of us are slandered at one time or another. If we are faithful to the word of God, it's almost an inevitability to have your reputation attacked. And although the attacks on you probably have not been accompanied by actual physical danger, they may have, nevertheless, I'm sure it really hurts to have your reputation attacked. I know when when we're children and our friends and our playmates say nasty things about us, we're taught to say, I don't know if this is true here in, 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 in Bajan traditions, but sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt you. Did you, get, did you hear that? Get taught that as a child? My personal favorite is, I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you, right? Sounds wonderful, but we realize it's not true. Names do hurt. Attacks do sting and wound deeply. Just read chapter 3 of the book of James, which talks about the tongue and compares it to something like the rudder on a ship directing and, 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 and can completely destroy. We recognize that what people say about us hurt and can do terrible damage. And to be falsely accused of something is agony. But it is important for us to understand that we do have a responsibility to rise above it. But how do we do that? What recourse do we have when we're slandered? When people attack our reputation? Well, what does David do here in verse 3? He says, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord, Yahweh, hears when I call for him. What David does is he takes refuge in his special status as a beloved one of God. The actual literal Hebrew word here is he sets apart the hasid. Oh, oh. Oh, chassid. Wait a second, that sounds very close to a word we learned this morning, which is chesed. Chesed. Chassid, chesed. The chesed for the chassid. All right, you're going to be spitting everywhere. All right? But our, our ESV translation here translates chassid as godly. And you can detect that it's related to my favorite Hebrew word, chesed, the unfailing love of God. That is God's mark on us, that we are his chassid. His chassid on his chassid. Try and say that a dozen times. 
as one commentator has put it, the Hasid is one who has been loved by God and loves God back. David stands in the midst of these attacks under God's special protection. And he knows it. He stands under the privilege of access to the covenant-keeping God. The God of the universe. It's amazing. I was, when, you, when you start to think, you know, we, we, we hear uh, the sounds of night and we look up into the, into the sky. It's nice, actually, in Barbados here, I can look up and see the stars in the sky. Toronto, we have so much light pollution, we can't see it. And uh, I was uh, reflecting on this in another situation. I'll talk about it uh, later. But we see so little of our universe. We have just, we have just a, 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 a small portion of what is actually out there. The trillions and trillions of stars that are out there. The vastness of space. It, it boggles our mind and our comprehension. That the God who made all of that is concerned about the mundane details of our lives. But he is. But he is. I, I just marvel at this often. I, I marvel of, at, at the passage that Jesus talks about where he knows the number of hairs on our head. I've said this before. I mean, I love my wife, but I'm just glad she has hair. I don't need to know how many hairs she has at that particular moment. But God does. He knows. He is that intimate. And he cares. He watches over us. Not a bird falls to the ground. Not a flower is clothed that he does not do it. And he is not overall over, overseeing and, and, and effecting these things. And so David here rests in God's sovereign, special attention and protection. Yahweh hears when I call to him. Verse 3. So the message here is that the weapon against slander is not to respond in kind. It is to remember how God looks at you. To hold on to what God has said about you. You are his chassid and he has set his chassid on his chassid. We have a gracious God. One of my favorite modern hymns is based on Uh, Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 1 is a helpful reminder of God's great promises. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You are mine. This is the God that we worship tonight. The God who calls you mine. The God that Zephaniah says looks over us with singing. Sings over us. This is the God that we come to. And we need to remember our identity. We need to remember who we are. Because brother and sister, tonight, whatever position you are in this worldly society, in, this, the, the, in, the, in the reality of, of the natural and the supernatural world, you are sons and daughters of the King, if you know Jesus Christ. If you're a believer this evening, you have that blessing. Dale Ralph Davis tells a story about the American politician and writer of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, who at one point arrived at a hotel in Baltimore to ask for accommodation. And he arrived, he happened to be in his working clothes, and he was spattered with mud. 
And the proprietor, looking him up and down, retorted, We have no room for you, sir. When Jefferson repeated his request and was refused, he laughed. A little while later, the proprietor's friend came in and told the proprietor that he had just refused a night's stay to the vice president of the United States. Now, can you imagine how he felt at that particular point in time? Those who despise you, brother and sister, child of God, son or daughter of the king, do not know who they are talking to. God has set you apart. He has set his chesed on his chesed. It doesn't matter what men say to you. We live for an audience of one. We live to come before God and for him to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You are not living for Pastor John's approval. You're not living for my approval. You're not living for the approval of your wife, your children, the society. You are living for the approval of your God. David does not mount a counter gossip insurgency. No. What does he do here? He takes refuge in God. And he addresses his hurts, his concerns to God in prayer. So first of all, the prayer here addresses the slanderers. The next group that David appears to address here are the angry. In verses 4 and 5, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in God. The next group that David is addressing uh, are the angry. These may have been David's own supporters, pro-David and upset at what's going on. Again, if this is the Absalom situation, they're upset that, that his son has usurped his father, has attacked his father. But how do you be angry and do not sin? You know, I think anger is actually a very interesting thing in the scriptures. Because we talk about God, and we talk about meditating on the attributes of God. And we talk about the communicable attributes and the non-communicable attributes of God. The non-communicable attributes are things like his omnipresence, his omniscience, those, his omnipotence. He's everywhere. He's all-powerful. He's all those things. That's something that God does not communicate to us. That's uniquely about, that's uniquely an attribute of God. But there are things about God that we created in his image reflect. And their love of God, the assessed love of God, how he loves us is how we ought to love one another. How he shows us forgiveness is how we ought to forgive one another. Graciously, generously, all of those things. But you know one of the things that I don't think we think about a lot? is that anger is an attribute of God. Holy anger. And I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we'll go, oh, yeah, I get angry, yeah. But it's not holy in its anger, right? How do you be angry and not sin? This is uh, what is in view here. Now, uh, this, this, this particular verse here in this, this section here is a little tricky in the Hebrew. Um, it's not an easy section to interpret. The language is tricky. Angry could be interpreted as tremble here as well. So you could say tremble and do not sin and offer right sacrifices. 
But I do think it is right to translate it here in verse 4, be angry and do not sin. And why do I think that? Well, one of the things when we approach the scriptures and we reach something that's difficult, we compare it. This is what our confession says in chapter 2. But this is, this is the, we let scripture interpret scripture. And we see virtually the same thing being said in the New Testament. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, we see this. He says something similar. Be angry and do not sin. Same, same phrase here. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So I think this, this helps us to understand that that is a faithful translation here. Be angry. And do not sin. But in either case, whatever it is, whether it's tremble or anger, you need to do it without sin. How do you accomplish that? Well, primarily, we provide this instruction here. We we focus on the last part of verse 4. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. The way you can be angry and not sin is by keeping your thoughts to yourself. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and keeping your mouth shut. Be silent. Not the gossip counterinsurgency. But that's the immediate response that's needed. How do you do that? When you're being openly attacked, what do you do? I've had some friends, some pastors who have had some real struggles in their ministries over the years. They have been misrepresented even by fellow pastors or attacked by their people. And it's very hard. The temptation is to to fire up that Facebook or that that Twitter feed and, and respond in kind, unload the salvo of my wrath, right? And to their credit, many of them, for the most part, have not done that. But it is a struggle to keep silent. But verse 5 also helps us here. It encourages us to focus our attention on what's truly important. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Well, this is a very interesting thing. Because when we do that, we are trusting the Lord with our reputation. Ultimately, everyone else here on earth may misjudge you. And that may make for a miserable life. But if God knows the truth, then you have an eternity with Him. He knows the truth. And He will act in His perfect justice. This is essentially what what God teaches in Romans 12 and 13. He does not call us as Christians when we're wronged to enact a sort of vigilante justice. We're not God's justice league. We're not the Avengers, right? I'm going to go there and I'm going to destroy and and mete out punishment and terrify my fellow man with my righteous wrath. Right? That's not it. That's not what we're called to do, brothers and sisters. No. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. I often think of the greeting card industry who, you know, has, has these little religious section and it says, you know, it has this beautiful pastoral scene on the front. It says, be still and know that I am God. Right? It's like, oh, that's, that's, that's really nice. But the context there 
is that you can be still and know that I'm God because I will avenge, I will repay. So you think when you're giving someone that card, um, you need to think about the whole context there. Because when you're doing that, when you're saying, be still and know that I'm God, you're trusting in God's wrath. You're trusting in God's justice. And that's what enables you to be still. That's what enables you not to go out and to rip it out of your enemy's hide. It's what causes you to trust the Lord, even when you are being wronged. Now, it's interesting. You know, Jesus, you know, says, turn the other cheek. And many Christians wrestle with that. And they think, you know, well, that's a door, doormat when you're struck. But you know, one of the things we often forget is that Jesus himself was struck. And what did he do when he was struck? Did he go like, you missed one, right? No, he didn't. He challenged the person who spoke to him. He said, why did you do that? Right? He wanted to expose the wickedness. He wasn't going out there and, and pounding into him, laying into him. He wanted to show the injustice. He trusts God, Yahweh, to act in his justice. It doesn't mean when we're attacked that we don't offer a defense calmly, firmly, clearly. It doesn't mean that we don't plead our innocence. But our confidence and our trust is far better invested in God the just than in sinful humanity. Now it sounds a little bit here, you might be thinking here, well, is Pastor Chris teaching me to repress my rage? Right? Teaching me to repress my anger? No. That's not what he's doing here. It's not denying the anger or rage against sin. God is wrath, right? God is holy. He has wrath against sin. It's acknowledging, however, that when we have anger, there is a need to control it in a proper and a godly way. One of the godliest things that you can do, brothers and sisters, when you're irate and angry, is to keep your mouth shut. Well, that goes against the grain. Pastor Chris, what are you doing? Some Christians even advocate against, they want you to be angry against God. But think about that. Can you be righteously angry against God? It doesn't work. If you could be righteously angry against God, you'd have to be God. You'd have to be all-knowing. You'd have to know that, that God's actions and His providential circumstances were wrong. But that's impossible. Because God is not wrong. God is sovereign. And we may not know why God does things. But we must remind ourselves of this truth. That His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And His ways are higher than our ways. And that even when it does not make any sense to us on the ground, He has the full picture the bird's eye view. And we need to express faith and trust in Him. Sometimes when we are facing these kinds of things, maybe we're not angry. Maybe we're not the slanderers. Maybe we are despairing. And this is the third group that I think David's addressing here in this little section from 2 to 6. In verse 6, he talks to this. 
He says, <coughs> there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Who will show us some good? Where is there any hope? These people whom David is addressing here, they just can't seem to see it. Who will show us some good? Maybe you've experienced this yourself at some point. You've had that struggle. Maybe there's someone that you know who is such a godly person, but they experience such suffering, and you're just overwhelmed for them. Sometimes we feel this way, don't we? When, when trouble sort of comes over us in waves and overwhelms us. Such that we despair and lose hope. What does David say about this? Well, what he does here is he paraphrases part of the ironic blessing of the, New Te- of the Old Testament. Now, we're not as familiar oftentimes uh, with the, uh, the, 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 the Old Testament, but these words that he says here in verse 6 are a paraphrase from the book of Numbers. The blessing that the priests gave to the people in, in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, give you shalom. This is what he is saying here. Lift up the light of your face upon us. What does he do? He turns the ironic blessing, the things that, that the priest would, would use in worship to bless the people, he turns it around, he turns it from a declaration to a petition. He turns it into prayer. It's not some just throwaway. It isn't, you know, just, uh, just, just some, some sort of empty phrase that he puts in here. He uses the ironic blessing, the doxological blessing that the priest would give the people, and he turns it into a prayer. It's a promise. It's not a bit of, bit of frosting on the cape. It's worship. And that's actually what we need when we're in despair, isn't it? The light of God's face. His attention and His care. Right? One of the things you find with your children is when you're talking to them, you know, especially my son, uh, Benjamin, he's always like looking all around. It's like you just want them to look at you. Right? It's funny. Um, in the car, little, little Wade, um, well, we'll be driving, I'm sitting in the front seat, and he'll say, Chris, 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 and keep saying it until I turn around and look him in the eyes. And then I say, what? He just looks at me. <laughs> and then I turn around. And then after a while, if I haven't looked at him for a while, he says, Chris, Chris, Chris. So I look at him, right? He wants to be acknowledged. He wants to be seen. We want to be acknowledged and seen, don't we? Because we are not, we are, we are children of God. We want His attention. And when we're experiencing difficulty. It's like, do do you even hear us? Shine your face upon us. Give us your grace and your attention, your care. And we do this. We, 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 We experience this as we worship God. We come into His presence. We come before His face. We rejoice. We sing His praises. This is the joy we have as we come together as the body of Christ. 
When we're experiencing hardship, sometimes we just want to turtle ourselves away. But one of the joys is that we bear one another's burdens. And we sing these same truths. And we walk through these difficulties together. So in these verses, verses 2 to 6, there's much instruction to warn the slanderers, to help the angry, to aid the despairing. But we see, thirdly, that this is a prayer that also inspires joy and peace. Verses 7 and 8. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, in shalom, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, O Yahweh, make me dwell in safety. And this prayer moves from despair to hope and confidence and peace. And that's because David here revels in the massive joy, the massive joy that comes in our special relationship with God. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. It's an internal joy. It's put in his heart. And it's an abundant joy. It's more gladness than theirs. Right? We see sometimes these, these festivals and there just seem to be you know, an abandoned and a worldly uh, joy that's there. We, we've all experienced that. We go to a nice party. We enjoy the, the people. We enjoy the blessings that are here. And there's such a temptation in this world to be focused on the material world. We have this, this idea that we're not fulfilled Unless we drive that car or wear those clothes. Or you've just got to have one of those. Right? Our hearts are so quick. Recently, my, my phone took a dive into water. And therefore, died. And I, I, I talked to my cell phone provider. And they were very generous because I'd been with them for a number of years. And they gave me a brand new iPhone. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful. But then two months later... The iPhone X was declared. And all of a sudden, my beautiful phone that I had so delighted in just didn't look so good anymore. Right? But it's sort of the nature of things, isn't it? We are never satisfied. We look for our satisfaction in all of those things. Grain and wine and iPhones are good gifts from God. Not to be belittled. Be grateful for them. Just don't trust them for your satisfaction. We must never despise the blessings God bestows, whether they're financial, they're physical, or political. What we must guard against is believing the marketing lie that more grain and increased profits and sweet wine and your neighbor's car and your neighbor's wife and a computer with more memory can deliver more joy than Jesus can. Nothing can deliver the joy that Jesus can. David here envisions a time when the harvest is bountiful. Crops are abundant and the future looks good. Frankly, brothers and sisters, as we look at our world, as we look at our economy, both here in Barbados and even in Canada, we're facing difficult times. It does not look like that. But David's asking us to envision a time when things looked bright. The wine flowing, the supply is endless, bellies are full. 
Our enemies are at bay. The bank account is expanding. Our mouths can just savor the sweetness of the fruit of the vine. Life feels good. Seems to be working. But David is saying at that point, there is still more joy in Jesus. More joy in the goodness and the greatness of God. There's more joy in the promise of eternal reward than in the presence of earthly riches. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was right when he said this. He said, Christ in the heart is better than corn in the barn or wine in the vat. Because not only is God's joy internal, abundant, it's also independent. You see, the the world's gladness comes and goes as the economy goes up and goes down. But the joy of God, the treasure of God, is something that does not spoil, perish, or fade. Remember what Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Pursue the joy of the Lord. But it's not just joy. It's peace. It's peace. Now that is a misunderstood word in our society. We think peace, we think those, those peace signs, right? That, that came up in the 60s. You know, it looks like a, a little uh, airplane. And actually, it came from the idea of a ballistic missile, right? It was crossing out. We, we don't want nuclear, non-nuclear world. We want world peace. The absence of conflict. But that's not the biblical version of shalom. That's a cheap imitation. It's not even a substitute. The shalom, the the peace of God here is because it is something where there is security in relationship. It is a peace that refers to the peace between man and God. That God's anger and his wrath at sin has been satisfied on the cross through Jesus Christ. And so we are at peace with God. That means we can come into his presence. The beautiful picture in the Old Testament is this picture of walking with God. Right? Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. Can you imagine that? Walking, you and Jesus, down the road. I've had some sweet fellowship here with John. We're good friends. We're good brothers. We enjoy talking about spiritual things. There's real enjoyment and joy. But it's nothing compared to fellowship with God. Intimacy. Relationship that He gives to us. And the the Old Testament speaks of walking with the Lord. And Enoch, in that one, he walked with the Lord and then he was no more. The picture is is that that, that, that God just brought him up into heaven. He didn't die. He just brought him up into heaven. He brought his friend in. And this is what the gospel does. It turns us from enemies into friends. God turns us. He, He brings us. He gives us security. And he enables us to dwell in safety. And it's not something just, that's just sort of ethereal, right? You know, it's not like just to say, you know, we talk about, well, wouldn't it be wonderful to have world peace? Well, what does that look like? Can you even imagine that? It's hard to imagine, isn't it? But here, again, this peace is tangible. It's real. You can take a hold of it. How do we take a hold of it? In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. 
my anxieties about my reputation, my anxieties about my, my situation. I can sleep. Peace, shalom, gives you sleep. Sleep helps us. You can sleep when your mind is at rest, when we're entrusting ourselves to God, even in the worst circumstances. Davis mentions the night that in 1555, that Nicholas Ridley, who was one of the English reformers, who reformed, helped to reform the church of England against Roman Catholicism. And for his pains, in order to do so, he was condemned to death because he would not deny uh, God. And the night before he died, on the 15th of October in 1555, his brother came to the Tower of London and offered to stay up with him, to, 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 to finish out his last life, his last night on earth with his brother. But here he was, Ridley, the Bishop of London, he told him to go home. He refused. And he said, I'm just going to go to bed and sleep and trust the Lord for the morning. Now, no one knows for sure if he had a restful sleep. But knowing the gift of God in his grace and his mercy and the faith of Bishop Ridley, I think there's little reason to doubt it. To doubt that he had this peace. My question to you tonight is, do you have this peace in the circumstances of your life? Is your heart always restless? I need to, I need to get a little more scratch. I need to, need to, need to do, do this. There's nothing wrong with supporting your family. There's nothing wrong with all of those kinds of things. But remember where your first love is. Remember where your joy is. Remember where your focus is. Remember where your peace is. Your peace is not found in your bank account. Your peace is not found in your success. Your peace is not found when men and women speak well of you. Your peace is found in the God who made you, the God who saved you, and the God who sustains you. Amen.